Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians, starting chapter number 11 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And we said that uh, uh, the book of Corinthians is how to run a church, which is important. We need to know that. And we kind of are learning by negative examples, which is sometimes a good way to learn. <laughs> Don't do it this way. And uh, the church at Corinth has had some issues, and they, he's been answering their questions. And now comes in chapter 11 another one of those situations. And uh, he is going to talk about uh, what he calls traditions. And it was important for them because they didn't have any traditions. It was a brand new church started in Corinth where uh, uh, the behavior of the people in the city is not what it ought to be. Uh, the main uh, thing that goes on religiously is prostitution. And so, naturally, when they come into church, they don't know how to behave. And he's trying to teach them there's certain things you do. There's behavior, church behavior. It's different from the world behavior. And we're trying to teach you those things. And that's an important thing. So, uh, <clears throat> he's just come off of chapter 10. Remember, we had the 6, 8, 10 principle. And in chapter 10, it was do all to the glory of God. Whatever you're going to do something, make sure it's for the glory of God. And that leads us up to chapter 11. In the first verse, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So, I follow Christ. You can follow my example and learn from that. And so, uh, he's going to try to teach them how to behave at church. And this is something that uh, uh, I see people come to church that don't know what to do. <laughs> I just seen that just recently. They come in and think, well, what do we do here? And uh, how do we behave here? And when I was this big, I was being taught how to behave in church. <laughs> My mother says, when you sitting in the pew, take your shoes off. I don't want to hear any noises from your feet when you're in the pew. And she allowed me to take uh, a couple of toys that would fit in my pocket. So I had little cows and chickens and stuff. And I kept them, brought them out and played with them. And whatever, don't you make any noise. And I learned that really early. And one time I put something in my pocket I got to sit on the end of the pew that time. And, and when I pulled it out, they fell, and it was dice. <laughs> and they rolled down the aisle. And in that church, man, it couldn't have been anything worse. And some of the old saints, <gasps> kid brought dice. And uh, so my mother, we got in the car. She said, why did you bring dice? I said, they fit in my pocket. <laughs> My father said, I got one question. Was it snake eyes? <laughs> 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 and so, uh, but you were learning 
how to behave and, and what church was. It's, it's a something, it's not just where you go to do whatever you feel like it. There's a behavior that you learn. I taught my kids the same thing. Where I went to church, kids were getting up and wandering all over. They said, we gotta go to the bathroom. They went three or four times in a half an hour. I told my kids, you will never, ever get up from that pew. When that service starts, you will sit there until it's over. Don't you dare move your feet. Because that's what I got told, see? So we learn how to behave. And you don't disturb a service. You know, you don't dig it whenever you feel like it and disturb the service. It's not what you're supposed to do. There's a behavior in church that you're supposed to have. And he's going to talk about something uh, that uh, is a little confusing to us, but we'll get through it and we'll make some sense out of it. <coughs> and uh, let's see what it is. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. Or he's been telling them certain things you do in church. You behave certain way. And they weren't doing well at it. Uh, it was chaotic in their church, very chaotic. And so he's going to be working on that for the next uh, four or five chapters on fixing the chaos during a service. You want chaos. So you cannot keep doing it this way. We're going to have to change your behavior. So your behavior is going to be based on things that I tell you. He calls them ordinances. Traditions would be a good word. This is how you behave. And, and go to church, behave yourself. All right? <clears throat> all right, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. And so he gives us... Uh, order of things. He said God is first, and that would be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And always God is three in one. And then he says Christ is under God. You say, well, how can that be? The God the Son is up there. Because Christ had a human form. And as a human, he answered to the Godhead. And then he said, there are men, all right, and they have Christ as their head, and there are women, and they have men as their head. And that's the way God set it up originally. God had an order for things that he wanted that order to be kept. And so we'll talk more about it, but they're going to enter into the, the problem that they're having. Verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. And every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. And if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. All right, so... He says, here's what I'm going to teach you. Uh, the men in church will have no headgear, no hats, right? nothing over their head. 
women will always have their head covered. Always going to have their head covered. Alright? He says, and there's a reason for that. Right? And right away, there's a lot of people say, well, this is a cultural thing. The culture of the day asked that these kind of things would happen. And that's true. That is true. It was a cultural thing then. And, uh, but there's a reason for it. And let's think about it for a while. So if you're a man and you're preaching, you're not to wear a hat. Right? And because you are a symbol of Christ. So when God made man, said he made him in God's image. Made in God's image. Now when God made woman, woman was made for the man. Woman was made for the man. Because God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so I'm going to make a woman so he can have her, all right? And then the woman is for the man. So the idea of wearing headgear when you're preaching or praying, uh, if you were a man, you were definitely not supposed to do it. You were supposed to be in the image of God, and God had nothing over him. Nothing over him. The woman is created for the man, so she is supposed to cover her head. And he says, if you don't uh, uh, cover her head, then shave all her hair off. What do you think of that? Well, I don't think anybody wants to do that, okay? In those days, and I don't think it's a whole lot different now, uh, in those days, if a woman shaved her head, there was a problem, of course. You never went in public that way. And actually, in the Old Testament, it talks about if you're fighting in an army and you take over a city and you bring home the women and children. It says, if you like one of those women, and you say, well, you want to be my wife? And she says, yes, take her home and shave her head. All right. So she's got to stay with you till her hair grows. And if you all get used to each other and it works out, then you can be married. Right? So that's what they did. It was a way of dealing with the idea that the woman is submissive to the man. So he says when a man preaching, he represents God. He's speaking for God. He should have nothing on his head. Because having something on your head uh, was a sign of Submission. Submission. Alright, so if you're representing God, God doesn't submit to anybody. So you wear nothing if you're a man. If you're a woman, you cover your head. You say, well, isn't that a cultural thing? Yes, it was. It certainly was. In those days, uh, women were treated differently than they are today. And, uh, they were expected, if you were Jewish, particularly if you were a rabbi, your wife was never to walk next side of you, ever. She always walked behind you. 
and not too close either. Four or five steps behind you. And you would never speak to your wife in public if you were a rabbi, never even acknowledge her. And that was their idea all right, of how a woman would show submission. So here in the church, he says, I want the women to show submission. I want you, if you're preaching or teaching, or if you're going to pray, have your head covered. I put something on it. In general, that would be a veil that they would wear. The head would cover. And uh, <clears throat> so it's interesting to note uh, that these things, we say, well, they're cultural things. Well, they're more than that. When I grew up in the 1960s, uh, I never saw a woman in church without a hat on. They all had a hat on. Sometimes a little hat that big, <laughs> sitting on the side of your head. I have a collection of those hats here. Once in a while, I bring them out and display them on old-fashioned days. And uh, they're all sorts of, of ugly things. <laughs> but I never saw women without a hat. Even my mother uh, wore a little bit of a hat for a while. Uh, that did eventually change. But uh, that was kind of normal. And you look at the Amish women and Mennonite women. They're all got their head covered. And uh, that's the way they go around with their head covered, some kind of hat on. And that was something that came up through the years. Um, so it still survives. This idea still survives. And when people come into church, particularly a man, he comes in, he's got his baseball hat on, he takes it off. Right? If he remembered. I brought mine in today. I forgot to take it off. <laughs> so somebody said, you got a hat on. Whoops. <laughs> I'm supposed to do that. All right. Well, it's a little different today. All right. We don't have the same cultural standards. But, but, well, it doesn't mean we throw everything out. All right. Doesn't mean we throw everything out. And so this was kept for years and years. And uh, people did that, all right? They wore their hats. Uh, <coughs> and ladies had hats on, and men didn't. And so uh, it was man created in God's image. God has no one to submit to. He's on top, number one. So man would never wear a hat as a symbol of submission. Women, says we're created for man, therefore cover your head. Now let's go on here, verse 7. For man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. Or we're made in God's image. We're supposed to show that image. But women is the, the woman is the glory of the man. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Right? So when God created man, he didn't say, well, I got a woman, I got to match you up. He just created man and put him in the garden by himself. And then he said, now I'm going to create a woman to go with the man. That's the way it was done. That's the way God created it. 
All right, verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. This is kind of a fascinating comment that he says. So to have power on your head, you know, I don't know what do you think you got up there. Power uh, wasn't that. It was to have your head covered to show to people that uh, you were submissive to a husband, and he said, they do it for the angels. That's kind of a fascinating idea. The Old Testament and in the New, they did believe that angels can attend services. Now, we always pray that the Spirit of God will come to the service, right? And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. So how do you know that angels aren't here? Well, you don't know. You don't know that angels aren't here. It could very well be angels here. We don't know that. We can't see that. We don't have any information about that. But it does say, with children in particular, that their angels always behold the face of the Father. Or God has a constant um, contact with the angels who are in charge of children. So God is very, very cautious, watching over children, and he gives the angels who become the guardian of children. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all that there would be angels here, particularly over there, okay? Particularly over there where the children are. That doesn't, wouldn't surprise me a bit. And so uh, <coughs> if we have angels in the service, he says, I want to make sure the angels can see that. Well, why would that be of any interest to an angel? Jesus said, angels don't get married. Angels don't have marriage like you and I do. Now, he said, someday when we all get through with this and we go up there, he said, well, then you'll be like the angels up there and you won't be married. All right. Point being, <laughs> my wife always gives me trouble about this. Point being, not that, uh, not that we were just saying, I'm getting rid of you, now I'm going to heaven. <laughs> All right? That's not what it's about. What it's about is uh, you as a man and you as a woman were not whole until you were married, and the two became one. There was always a gap somewhere. It's very clear to me, after all the years I've been married, pushing 48, uh, it's very clear to me that I had a lot of gaps, and that Cheryl filled them in. All right? Very clear to me. And that's the way God intended it. The woman is going to be a helpmate, or she's going to fill in the gaps for the man. And so when the two come together, then they're like one, one fills in the gaps. And he said, I want the angels to see that, all right? I want the angels to understand, uh, because the angels do not have the same feelings the way men and women do. The way they're tied together in marriage. So he says, I want them to see that. Why? Because um, they need to see how love works in this way that God created it down here. So 
we'd normally conclude from this information that I've given you so far, we would normally conclude if you had the general opinion that women being on the bottom of the list are inferior. Right? And that's the normal conclusion that people make all the time. They say, well, the Bible says women have got to be submissive to men, and they must be inferior. And I want you to know that is not God's opinion. It's not what he's here doing. It's not what he's trying to explain. Trying to, in one case, show the angels what? How two people work together and become one. And so she says, make sure that woman is showing signs that she's married to that man who's going to fulfill what she needs. And she's married to him and they're equal together. All right. And uh, so this is not God's opinion that they are inferior. And that's very important to grasp. Verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so the man is also by the woman, but all things of God. All right. So here's, he said, here's God's point of view about it. He says, God made the woman for the man, all right? And then he says, and God made it so that the man could only exist if he was born of a woman. That's what he's saying there. So where did, he say, well, where did that man come from? He came from his mother, all right? So the woman allows the man to exist by bringing the person in. So when God looks down, he says, he says, well, mister, if it wasn't for your mother, you wouldn't even be here. All right? So you don't get the idea that you're superior. And young lady, you were created for the man. And so each one of us has a part and we play and a responsibility we play. And in God's eyes, he does not look down and say, make sure those women stay down, get their heads covered. That's not what it's for. All right. <coughs> now, let's go on. Uh, verse 13. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Now, you and I today wouldn't even... It wouldn't even cross our mind. We wouldn't think about that. Uh, but uh, he says in this time, if a woman came in and prayed uncovered, she'd be making a statement to everybody in the church that, hey, I don't need my husband. He's not nothing to me. I can pray with my head uncovered, my face open. And that's who I am. And so uh, that would have been the statement. It was a symbol. You wore the covering over your head as a symbol of the submissiveness that God had originally intended for the woman to the man. All right, verse 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. 
And so he says, it's kind of the natural thing. If some guy comes along and he's big, strong, husky brute, and look at that young, tough fella, and he's got long, flowing hair, you say, cut your hair, man, look like a man. And if a woman comes along with long, flowing hair, she says, oh, she's beautiful. Make my heart go like this. All right. And so he said, that's kind of you know, natural thing. It's not an unnatural thing. So he says, uh, a man is different, and God created them different. All right. Now you're going to tell me, well, I know guys with their hair down to here. Yeah, me too. All right. Things are different now than they once were, and I understand that. And uh, we, we get that. We understand that. But there's a natural principle. Men look funny with long, beautiful hair. So it might be, now watch this, 16. But if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. All right, so he's saying, here's the general custom, the tradition. When we go from church to church, and I'm telling you in Corinth because you're new. You don't have traditions yet. I'm trying to build your traditions. That this is kind of the way that we do things. Uh, the women come in and cover their head, and the men do not. You know, just for the exact opposite reason. But he said if there's contention, if any man seems to be contentious, all right, we have certain customs in the church and if you want to argue about it, well, go ahead. And uh, certainly there is what I would call to this an overreaction. All right, there's an overreaction. And I think that's what he's saying. Somebody wants to argue about it. Somebody wants to be contentious. We're not going to argue over it. So we're not going to have a big battle because uh, it's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a attitude in church behavior that's conducive to the spirit that we want to do. All right? And so we want this to show. Now, how does it work? Well, overreacting is sometimes amazing. I grew up in the late, early 60s and late 60s when hair was the battle. Give me a head with hair, right? Long, beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, waxing, flaxing, streaming. You remember, you remember that. Give me the sound of hair. Long, beautiful hair. All right, and that's where I grew up. And the church was never more obnoxious than when that came along. I remember these old ladies and... Uh, Talk about the overreaction to this situation. Um, these ladies, <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't their pastor. I knew their pastor and I felt sorry for him. Uh, these ladies said, I'll tell you one thing, that Billy Graham is certainly no man of God. And I, they said, what? I mean, if there ever was no question, that's it, right? Billy Graham, he's got long hair. Now, you may not remember, but there was a time when Billy Graham was 
probably in his 40s, that he had a long head of hair. It wasn't long down his back, but it was long up here. And when he preached, he would sweep that back with his hand and, and put it in place. And it didn't look bad at all. Never even occurred to me that it was long until these characters said he wasn't God. Man's God's man because he got long hair. How stupid, all right? How stupid can you get? I mean, yeah, his hair was longer than a lot of people, but certainly that was no sign of that, all right? And uh, when I was growing up, I remember uh, this old fellow was the principal of our school, and he was a good old boy. And he came swimming over in this pond where I used to work on a farm. And uh, he said to me, you know, uh, beards are a pretty good thing. And I never heard anybody say that. Right? Everything I heard was, don't you dare grow a beard. And, uh, and that's a sign of rebellion. He said, no, he said, my father uh, considered his beard a thing of distinction. And that's what caused me to grow a beard. Because I said, you know what? That old guy's right. <laughs> That old guy's right. It's got nothing to do with rebellion. It's just hair on your face, for goodness sakes. And uh, so uh, that whole concept, you know, and I grew up in a church where they said, don't you dare grow a beard, for heaven's sakes. And, of course, that of course made me want to do it all the more. But uh, uh, the, the, the concept that we were going to judge a person by the length of their hair was ridiculous. All right. And so uh, the point that God is trying to make with this, and that Paul's trying to get across to us, is he says, I want there to be an attitude in your church of families doing what they ought to do. And so let the man not wear a hat and let the woman wear a hat and so that you can look and say, well, there's a happy couple. You don't say, oh, that poor woman. Because after a while, it wasn't for a woman, he wouldn't be. All right? That's God's point of view. So God's trying to teach here, and Paul is trying to get across the point. He says that this was what God set up in the beginning. God was over Christ. Christ was over man. And it was Jesus who created Adam, you know, Jesus created Adam. All right, get that in your head. Jesus created Adam, made this man in his image, all right, and the woman was made for the man. And he said, that's the order that God set up, and I want that order to appear in your church. In what form? Family form. They come into your church, and there's families operating just like they should. He says, I want the angels to see it. They don't have families. They don't have families. So I want your church to be focused on family. All right? And he says, and that's what we're trying to get across here. And so when he's saying to the lady, cover your head so that the, if an angel's watching, he'll know, well, that man and that woman work together. And they, he doesn't wear his 
cat because he's cooperating with God and she's cooperating with him and God looks at them both as equals anyway. So it's a really extraordinary situation that doesn't appear in heaven. It only appears down here on earth. So he says, I want that to be clear. And you say, well, what is that? how does that work for us? Oh, we, I thought about these things for hours, um, for hours. And um, how do we encourage appropriate behavior in our church? What do we do in the church to encourage that kind of thing? Well, a long time ago, we started uh, things, and there was very, you know, nothing came thoughtlessly is because I watched what went on in the churches I attended, and I saw what didn't work, and I saw the problems were, so we're gonna try to fix those problems. And one of the problems was there was always people who slipped through the cracks. There was people who would come to church day after day, month after month, year after year, and nobody even noticed them, all right? Because they quietly sat in their pew, quietly went about their business, and went out the door when it was over. Nobody said a word. And so I said, we got to do something so people don't slip between the cracks. So let's make sure that we wish them happy birthday. Right. That way we'll get everybody. Nobody will ever say, I sat in church a whole year and nobody never mentioned my name. Because we're going to sing happy birthday to you. All right? That's the reason for things you do. And the, this, this concept in chapter 11 is why we honor marriages. All right? Why we say this is your uh, anniversary and you've been married 20 years, 30, 40 years, everybody stands up and claps. Why? Because it's our way of doing what he's instructing here. He's trying to teach that families are a unit Angels need to see it. Everybody in the church needs to have that concept in their mind that the family comes together as a unit. And that would be appropriate behavior. And so every week uh, we say anybody that's been, uh, has an anniversary, uh, we honor you. And if you've been married a long time, we particularly do something to honor you. Why? Because it's this. This is God's plan. How God set it up. And so we're going to make sure that we follow God's point of view and say here in this church, this is what we consider a wonderful behavior, appropriate behavior, when families work together, grow together, stay together, and, uh, and are a shining example of what God originally intended. And so we go back to the very beginning when God created Humans, why did he create them? To be together. Something that he didn't do in heaven. He only did here on earth. And so it's a wonderful thing that God put uh, men and women together and we're going to honor it. Now this was how they honored it then. So when they came in the church and they see a lady with her head covered and she's, there's the man there. Okay, well that's a good thing. Those two are together. Those two work together. Those two are a unit, all right? And even the angels need to see that. <clears throat> so, what sounds like a cultural thing, and a lot of people have dismissed this and said, hey, look, nobody cares anymore whether women got their head covered. Well, 
true enough, we, we don't care anymore if you wear a little hat on your head with a hat pin stuck in it. Right? We, we don't care anymore about that. Uh, it's not what, how we interpret that. But we still go back to what God said and, and value that. And so, uh, you know, you have a beard, nobody needs to throw a rock at you. It's okay, you can do it, all right? And so, uh, it was meant to put into the church something that wasn't in the world. In the world, right, and we can do whatever we want. Uh, we don't have to follow you know, and try to stick together and work it out. We can just do whatever we want. We can dump her or I can dump him whenever I feel like it, and that's what's out there. And we're going to say, not in here. That's not what we do here. All right? We value that because that was God's original intention. All right? So our answer to 1 Corinthians 11 is, and uh, this week... It's an anniversary for whoever. That's right? our way of honoring it. So it's not something that we just did because we needed to take up time. A very specific point of view. We do it for a purpose. And the purpose is to show that this is something God approves of. And it's the kind of behavior he wants the church to reflect out. Okay, so how does we run a church? We honor those things. We honor marriage. And that's an important thing. So that's really what this is about. And it's really not cultural. It was cultural in that day as they saw a woman with her head covered. They say, well, that must be her husband next to her. And she sticks with him for that purpose. All right. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very logical, reasonable thing. All right, now let's go on, verse 17. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Wow. Now, he's starting another topic here. He's finished the thing about the covering of the head and showed us what it means. Now, he's starting another topic. He said, now, he says, on this, what I'm about to tell you, he says, uh, you really had a mess. You've made a mess of it. It's a big mess. And I'm going to tell you that it would be better to go home and not have church than do what you're doing. That's what he just said. All right, he said... Uh, 17, in this I declare and I praise you not that you come together not for the better but for the worse. And he said, when you get together and do what I'm about to explain, you'd be better off going home and not doing it. Your services are a disaster and you need to fix them. And here's the first part. He's going to be, he's going to be telling us through the next few chapters several things here, but here comes the first part. Verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in church, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. All right, so he says the first thing you do when you come to the services is you divide up. 
divide up. You split up. You know, he's got one little group over here, one little group over there, and he says, I don't like it. I don't think it's a good thing. And you're doing it because there's someone you like. And that was the original problem, right? This one said, I like Peter. That one said, I like Paul. This one said, I like Apollos. And so he says, as soon as you get together, instead of being together, you divide up right away. All right? <clears throat> Anything that divides people is you, it's a, something you have to be very watchful for. Very watchful for. And try not to ever divide people. Try to keep them together. And then, of course, a lot of churches now divide people all over the place. They're constantly dividing people. It is the uh, thing to do to divide up into small groups. And here he says, I hear you guys little groups getting together. I don't like it. And what's all the rage in the church? Small groups, small groups, small groups. You hear it everywhere. All right. And so, of course, you've got to qualify it. This, this church started from a small group. It was a Bible study. That's not a bad thing. That kind of small group is not a bad thing. However, that's another topic. Let's keep going here. All right. Uh, he said, there may be heresies among you. And he said, there's things you're doing wrong, and the sign of it is that you divide. That's always a sign. Verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before another his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunken. So <clears throat> what the church did, the early church, is they had what was called a love feast. And this started in Jerusalem as they were all getting together. And I've been explaining to you how they all stayed right there in Jerusalem. And there's 5,000 of them. And they're trying to help each other. So they eat their meals together all the time. And somewhere during the meal, they say, well, let's have communion. Now we've got some bread. Here's the bread. This is my body broken for you. Here's a cup. And they stick communion into a love feast. And that was the way it was done. And when they got to Corinth, he said, here's a problem. Uh, every one of you uh, brings something to the love feast. And then he says, you run up and grab your food and go sit in the corner and gobble it down. All right? And then somebody else, oh, that looks good. Let me grab that and gobble that down too. Hurry up and run up to the trough. Like, <laughs> we got a trough, right? <laughs> Hurry up, run up to the trough and get everything that's good and get back and make sure you get all you can get. He said, and there are people there who don't get anything. They don't get anything. He said, they go up and there's nothing there. One is hungry, he said. By the time they get up there, you slobber down everything you could get your hands on. And some of you, he says, are making sure you get the wine and you're half drunk before the service is over. Verse 22, what? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. He said, your behavior around the Lord's table is atrocious and it needs to be fixed. And so this selfish attitude 
Now, you're going to get what's all you can get. Uh, he said, that's, that's not good. He said, there are people left out. When it comes time to share the bread, you've eaten half of it already. And somebody says, okay, let's have communion. And there's 10 people back there who didn't run to the trough first, and they don't have any bread for communion. He said, this is really, he said, it'd be better if you all went home than kept doing this. Don't do this anymore. Well, what are we supposed to do? And this next thing, verse 23, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, that is a fascinating statement. <clears throat> if you want to read about the Last Supper, you can go to Matthew and get his impression. And you can go to Mark and Luke and John. And all of those authors give their part, their story of the Last Supper when Jesus did the first communion. All right. And then Paul is thinking about this. And he says, Lord, what should I say? What should I tell him? And God, and I think, here's what I think. Uh, I think Jesus said, I'll take you there. So I'm going to give you a vision of what it was like. I'll take you there. That's what I think. Uh, if he didn't literally show him like watching a movie, uh, then he specifically told him, everything that happened. Uh, but he said, I got this from God. Jesus told me this. I got this directly from God. And he's about to explain communion. And so you can read Matthew's point of view, read Mark's point of view, Luke's point of view, John's point of view. This is Jesus' point of view. This is what Jesus said happened. That's why it's superior. We use this passage when we take communion. Why? Because this is by far the best explanation of what happened. And I think Jesus probably said to Paul, let me give you one of these visions. I mean, Paul had visions where he went, he said, to the third heaven. He said, I've had so many visions that I can't, some of them I can't even tell. I'm not allowed to speak them. So I think it's probably true that God, or Jesus said, I'll take you there. I want you to watch and see what happened. And so through Jesus' point of eyes, we get this passage, and it has been the superior passage on how the communion works. And you've heard me read it uh, over the years many, 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 many times, all right? 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Here's what happened. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. said, take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he said, this cup is a new testament in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so there's two elements. There is bread and there's a cup. All right, 26, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. It's the purpose of it was to remind us continuously until Jesus comes back that 
that Jesus died, gave his life for us, his blood and his body. So these people, it's a disaster. And so he's about to tell them, here's what you're going to start doing. All right, 27. Therefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And he said, you guys are doing that every day. Every time you take communion, it's a mess. And he said, and it's not a worthy way to take it. There's people out there that don't get any bread because you gobbled it all up. And the wine's gone because the money is sitting over in the corner drunk. He said, for heaven's sakes, that is not how it's going to go. And if it does go that way, he said, God will judge. God will judge you. When anybody says that, pay attention. Pay attention. Because listen to what he's about to say. 30, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. He said, because you are judged of God, you treated the Lord's table in this selfish, offhanded way. And it's a terrible what you're doing there. He said, so God's judging you, and some of you are sick. You're sick because of that. Some of you are weak sickly and even some of you have died because God is judged 31 if we would judge ourselves we should not be judged All right. so he said you need to stop examine yourself make sure that when you come to the Lord's table you do it in a proper attitude and if you don't if you come offhand I'll do whatever I feel like doing and God is going to judge you for it and he said some people are dead because of it. Now I can't say that I ever saw anybody dead because of this. I can say that I saw people weak and sickly. I can say that. I've seen that over the years where people uh, will snap and bite people and be absolutely miserable and then sit down. Thank God for my salvation. I'm taking communion. Now, God doesn't approve. God doesn't approve and he's going to judge it. And so he says, you need to think real carefully before you do this. 2032. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Or God's trying to straighten your act out, discipline you for your poor behavior around the Lord's table. All right? He's going to do that. He says, you don't want to end up like the people out in the world who don't know anything about it, turn their back on God and go to hell in the end. He said, you need to make sure you do this right. Do it well. All right? Make sure, 33, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry for one another. Don't just, as soon as you get there, let's gobble the food down, and the guy who comes in later doesn't get any. Wait for everybody to arrive. It's to be a complete service with everybody in attendance, 34. If any man hunger, let him eat at home. They were coming, and I said, yeah, I'm starving. Didn't eat all day. Give me that. Give me this. Give me that. 
And let him eat at home. What he's saying is this concept that you have of a love feast where you all bring food and all sit and eat and you throw communion in the middle of it, we got to stop that. He said you need to eat at home on these days. Eat at home. If you're starving, you eat at home. Don't come in there with that attitude. If you come not together unto condemnation. All right, so they can't have that. The rest I will set in order when I come. He says, when I get there, we're going to straighten it out and make sure it's done the way it should be done. So we share a meal. Eat at home. It is not to be a, a meeting of greed and selfishness. Just the opposite. It's, it's all representative of what Jesus did, what he accomplished. And so Paul gives Jesus' impression here, and it's much more complete than the others. And so think about it. Don't be like the people who crucified Jesus. That is no thought. You think real hard. Approach God's table thoughtlessly and judgment is going to be on you. So it's, a, it's quite a statement that he's making. And he is very unhappy with the way they serve communion. So he gave it to them right from Jesus' mouth. Here's the way it went. There was bread and there was wine and not a whole big feast. And they ate those things together, all together, and they thoughtfully did it. And that's what God wants. So, uh, two corrections. One in the idea of that in the church there's an attitude that should prevail that family units are strong. Just the opposite of what is out in the world. He said, naturally, we want you to behave that way when you come to church. We want to support that that God originally intended and then he said, here's another thing that God intended, that the communion service would be a very thought-provoking thing that we share all together. And he said, be careful, don't mess with it. And so we have made our, our example, the way we do things is that you're going to have a little time to pray and make sure that your heart is right before you partake of it. And uh, we will always try to give you that because I don't want to be blamed if somebody has carelessly come to the table. And I will be if I don't do it like it says. It'll be my fault. I'm never going to, I'm always going to say, you need to, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, have some quiet prayer, and you talk to God. Very important. All right. And so, uh, yeah, thought goes into these things. There's a reason why we do what we do. And he's explaining that the attitude in church is not an attitude of anti-family, just the opposite. It's not an attitude of greed and selfishness. It's just the opposite. I want those attitudes to prevail inside the church so that when people come in, they can say, wow, this is different. This is not what I'm used to outside the door." Okay, so how do you run a church? There's two very good explanations. We'll keep going on next week. Thank you.